Welcome to Same Surgeon, Different Life, part of the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. This series focuses on demystifying cardiothoracic surgery and presenting the remarkable backstories of surgeons from a variety of backgrounds and in various career stages that have led them to become the face of CT surgery. I'm Dr. David Tom Cook, and in each episode, Dr. Tom Varghese and I will get to know more about our colleagues, the obstacles, the success stories, trade-offs, and pivotal moments that have shaped their careers as well as their personal missions. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. The program will return after a message from our sponsor. I'm Dr. Sandeep Kandar, a thoracic surgeon from Virginia Cancer Specialists, with a message about the importance of referring patients with resectable stage 1B through 3A non-small cell lung cancer to a medical oncologist consistent with national guidelines. I believe that all of these patients should be referred to a medical oncologist early in their treatment pathway. Using biopsy samples taken before or during surgery, medical oncologists should order guideline-recommended molecular testing to help inform therapy decisions. In my opinion, it is important to talk to these patients about recurrence rates after surgery, as well as molecular testing, which may impact treatment decisions for eligible patients. These conversations should happen either before surgery or shortly thereafter. Overall, a multidisciplinary team-based approach may help drive informed decisions so patients can receive the right treatment options for them. This content is sponsored by AstraZeneca. Hello to all of our loyal listeners. I'm Tom Verghese, your host for today's episode of Same Surgeon, Different Life. From systemic racism to economic disadvantages, Black men face numerous obstacles in their path to medicine. In a AAMC 2015 report titled Altering the Course, Black Males in Medicine, the number of Black men enrolled in medical school actually decreased between 1978 and 2014. More recent AAMC data show little improvement. Taking an even broader view, in April of 2021, a UCLA study published in the Journal of General Internal Medicine found that the proportion of physicians who are Black in the U.S. has only increased by four percentage points over the past 120 years. For perspective, in 2018, when 12.8% of the total U.S. population was Black, 5.4% of U.S. physicians were Black, which encompassed 2.6% Black men and 2.8% Black women. Amidst these odds arose an extraordinary leader. Dr. Alan Pickens grew up on a farm in rural Alabama, the small town of Sawyerville, to be exact. His father worked for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers as a painter by trade, and Alan was the youngest of six children. Dr. Pickens' first exposure to even the concept of a medical career was through the Macy Foundation BioPrep program when he was in the sixth grade, a program specifically designed to get rural students inspired to pursue a career in medicine. Despite the ongoing obstacles afterwards, Dr. Pickens has achieved many firsts in his career. The first thoracic surgeon to perform a thoracoscopic lobectomy at the University of Michigan. The first robotic lobectomy at Emory University. The first African-American thoracic surgery program director at Emory University. In today's episode, hear about his amazing life's journey, his pearls of wisdom, and the hopes he has for our field in the future. Join us on today's 
same surgeon, different life. I have this incredible honor to be joined today by Dr. Alan Pickens, who is a cardiothoracic surgeon at Emory University. Uh, Alan, welcome to the show. Thanks, Tom, for inviting me. It's a pleasure and an honor to sit and chat with you. Uh, so for the listeners, uh, just to let you know, Alan and I go back a long way. Uh, you know, when Alan was on faculty at the University of Michigan, he trained me. So you could partly blame him for me being here. So it's, it's all great, Alan. <laughs> I think it was more like you kept me out of trouble, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well, Alan, as you know, the, really the goal of this podcast is to start with the origin stories. And you have a phenomenal story. So let's start with that. Uh, tell us about your childhood uh, in Alabama. All right. From the from, from where it began. So I grew up in a, a very small rural town in Alabama. Um, um, my father was a, a painter with the Corps of Engineers, and uh, we had a farm. And we learned the work ethics and the, uh, the <laughs> need to do good work from that lifestyle. Um, and this was in Sawyerville, Alabama. Is that correct, Alan? Yes, Sawyerville, Alabama. Little small town. If you look on the map, you probably won't even find it. <laughs> but there are some associated towns. What we tell people is we're about 30 minutes south of Tuscaloosa, which everybody knows where the Crimson Tide is located. So obviously, uh, the Crimson Tide's in your blood, so to speak. Uh, is, is that correct? It is. It is. It's my SEC team, but I also remain loyal to Michigan as my Big Ten team. So, oh, there you go. You, now you're just being kind. <laughs> but that, tell us about growing up on a farm. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm envisioning crack of dawn chores, uh, the whole nine hours. I mean, is that correct? I mean, what, what, what you did you are correct? Farm? That is an accurate description of what it was. And there was a lot of hard work to be done on the farm, but it taught work ethic. Uh, you learn that, you know, you had to get your work done, but you also were responsible for doing your schoolwork. So despite how many, you know, plant crops that had to be harvested or animals that had to be fed, we still had to get our schoolwork done as a priority. And that was something that my parents felt very strongly about, primarily because they did not have the fortune of getting a quality education. Uh, my mother uh, only completed the 11th grade and my father only completed the sixth grade. So what they learned in their struggles was that they would not allow any of their children to have such a hardship. So they were very adamant about us going to school and doing well in school. And it didn't end in, you know, primary school, you had to go on to college and it wasn't an option. <laughs> they made that quite clear. Military was also not an option uh, in terms of our family desires. So um, you were the youngest of six kids. Um, for the listeners, uh, Alan is um, a, an incredibly well-built man whose arms are probably bigger <laughs> than my legs uh, in terms of you know, sheer size and strength. I can't imagine you being the runt of the family, but, but tell me about that. <laughs> uh, well, you were once again accurate. I was the runt of the family. <laughs> they were all six feet and above, and I'm, I'm nowhere near six feet. And uh, 
being the youngest, you <laughs> it all rolled downhill. And so, <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> I took a lot of those. Uh, I took a lot of those uh, instructional opportunities in stride from my older brothers. <laughs> that's that's and, amazing. Uh, did you play competitive sports um, growing I up? I did not. My older brother uh, had a really bad injury, and my mother vetoed it from me on down for football. Uh, injury was, playing football, or he did, uh, and uh, really damaged his uh, joint and his elbow, and uh, had some real lifelong problems. So the only options that were available to us was basketball and baseball, neither of which I could play. <laughs> That's great. Um, when did uh, pursuing a career in medicine set in? Mm -hmm. The medicine concept came up about from an interview with the Macy Bow Prep Program recruiters. And for those that don't know, this was a program established by the Macy Foundation from the Macy Department Store, which went out into rural areas and recruited performing or high performing students to participate in a preparatory program. They would give them strong backgrounds in science and math with hopes that they would proceed on into undergraduate and then graduate school in medical professions. Um, we took college level courses in high school. They brought in special teachers. They also helped fund uh, undergraduate education for the students that were in the program. They introduced us to physicians and uh, let us see a little bit of what medical professions could be like. And that was a huge motivating factor for me in terms of trying to succeed as a physician uh, and really set the path for me. And, and, and how old are you when you, when you engaged in this program? Mm -hmm. I was uh, leaving the sixth grade, headed into the, uh, actually, I, actually it was the seventh grade. I skipped the eighth grade and they put me in the program as a ninth grader. So you skipped the eighth grade, uh, trying to downplay his genius. That's good. Uh, <laughs> we, we I, was got it. I was in the right that's, place at the right time. Yeah, that's, all, that's all great. <laughs> so that was where it was really seeing role models uh, that left a big impression on you. Is, is that correct? It was. It was an opportunity to one, see physicians in their practice. That was something I never had the opportunity to do in rural Alabama, uh, particularly as a young man of color, we didn't see or know anyone in that profession. Um, none of the, were, were the physicians were the physicians you engaged with um, underrepresented minorities also, or was it kind of a diverse mix of physicians? It was a, it was a, it was initially very not diverse in Alabama. As I proceeded to get introduced to physicians around the country, uh, then I had the opportunity to engage with more underrepresented in medicine physicians and learn some, some things to look out for and some things that would work better for me. Um, and that was the opportunity to establish some mentors of diverse backgrounds. Uh, so as you're coming up, um, you've probably been the first in many rooms, correct? I mean, it's, <laughs> Um, I, I mean, I, I'm just imagining rural Alabama, whip smart. You actually, you know, advanced, skipped a grade. Um, 
but we know all the turmoils of the times. And even now, as we talk in 2021, there's still a long way to go in terms of race relations. How did you end up facing that? Or what were some of the successful strategies you employed? Uh, you know, was it taking the high road? Was it picking your battles? You know, uh, explain to our listeners about how you navigated that path. That's a great question, Tom. And I think a lot of it points to what you just mentioned, taking the high road. And it was a self-awareness uh, <laughs> event where you had to really like control your responses to things that people would say to you that were inappropriate. <clears throat> I remember very distinctively one of my mentors that I had established early in my general surgery training uh, made a comment and a derogatory statement about people of color. And I had to, one, respect the fact that he was my supervisor and my advisor uh, at that time and not hold that against him. But I quickly went and <laughs> requested a different advisor uh, during that period of time. But you take those events and you use them as positive motivators to cause you to want to do better. And also it really stimulated me to want to give back in academics. It made me want to be involved in the educational process so that I could hopefully explain what cardiothoracic surgery involves to other underrepresented in medicine individuals so that they would be interested and then also help facilitate having them get into training programs by preparing them for what they would be encountering. Uh, sort of telling them the road I travel. I mean, uh, you know, as a minority myself, but not an underrepresented minority. I mean, I've only probably faced a sliver of the racism that you've probably faced in your life. Uh, isn't that really hard to do? Always take the high road. I mean, at some point <laughs> you would expect, I mean, heck, I remember situations where, you know, the anger builds up and it's a natural thing to do, but then trying to take that however i mean that must be challenging and to still keep doing that even today uh isn't that correct it is correct as a student it actually was a little more tolerable than it is as a uh, attending or faculty member it was one thing to have someone say something racially insensitive as a student because you're you're not responsible for their care it is a different concept as a attending physician where that person is under your watch and responsibility and you don't agree with their comments or behavior, but you have to totally disregard that and continue to do the right thing for them medically. Uh, so it, it is always a challenge. Um, the world has come a long way, I, I can attest to, uh, in a short period of time. Uh, there's been a lot of, a lot more awareness and uh, a lot more allies made in this battle uh, to create equality for everyone. It's a, it's it's remarkable, uh, and it's a testament to to the character and the faith that you have, uh, uh, Doctor Pickens. So that's incredible to be able. That's to a big that. part of it, Tom. You bring up there in terms of your faith, also, and knowing you know believing in something bigger than the individual standing around you allows you to endure a lot more than you otherwise would. Yeah. I wanted to pivot now to uh, your remarkable career as a, as a cardiothoracic surgeon. And so for those who don't know, um, so I have the distinct honor of being 
the first thoracic track fellow ever at the University of uh, Michigan in the cardiothoracic surgery fellowship. And, and Dr. Pickens was one of my earliest mentors and attendings there. But what was unique about Dr. Pickens is in this storied institution, Dr. Pickens is the one that did the first ever VATS lobectomy at the University of Michigan. And then you've proceeded to go forward now at Emory University of being the attending to ever do the first ever robotic lobectomy at Emory University. Again, another storied institution. Talk to us about how you, in the setting of a storied institution, introduce a new technology and kind of rally people to this new technique. Because I imagine that you probably faced a lot of resistance before you did that. Very much so. Uh, you can attest to uh, the way things that Mark Oringer did things at the University of Michigan. You didn't change. We did it the same way every time, according to <laughs> Dr. Oringer. I wasn't going to quote him correctly, but <laughs> I guess you went there, but go ahead. <laughs> but bringing in a, a different way of doing things requires a lot of education outside of the operating room. And so I've found in the couple of opportunities I've had to bring in new technology is that you have to educate everyone around you on the benefits and the process to completing those procedures. And once you educate them, they are more capable of helping you to get it done, uh, not only in the operating room, but the post-operative care um, all is made easier by having people know what the goal is. And then from there, educating the patients on what the expectations will be. You know, you'll be a short, minimally invasive operation. You're going to recover quicker. People usually stay in the hospital a lot longer, but you will go home a lot quicker because you'll have less invasive uh, incisions and smaller incisions that cause a lot less pain. So that that was always my philosophy. Uh, let's educate those that don't know all the details about these operations. Let's prepare all of the staff that will help do the operation, and then there we get the right patients for the operations. Initially, success breeds success. So any tips on overcoming resistance in organizations? Because I can imagine I'm envisioning as you're doing this raising awareness and you're implementing the, these small changes to change the practice, there are probably some who rallied easily to your side. You saw the wisdom of this, but I'm imagining there were some entrenched people that no matter what you did, it, you just had to overcome. Any tips for, for us in terms of overcoming those pockets of resistance? Yeah, that's when you have to just get people to realize there's enough to go around to everyone. I'm not here to take your business or to make your practice obsolete. I'm here just to provide an alternative way of doing things. And I think that goes a long way when people see you as you know, a partner that wants to grow the business as opposed to someone that's coming in trying to take their business. Um, so that would be my first uh, word of advice. Yeah. And then as you started doing outreach, you know, you got, you, you pilot tested these new techniques, you're seeing early success. How did you go about into the community in terms of, uh, I'm imagining, you know, there was the education efforts locally at the institution, but now you're talking about reaching out to the community. What were some of the tips and tricks that you did or pearls of wisdom that you could share with all of us? Exactly. So at that point, I made a very deliberate effort to use our marketing teams at the various institutions. 
One, I went to them and presented the new technology. We put together a package of how we would present this, not only to the physicians in our hospital, but our community. We went out on educational campaigns in the community. I can't tell you the number of offices that I went into sitting and speaking with, you know, two to 10 physicians to tell them about the pros and cons of these minimally invasive techniques. Um, it was uh, very well received um, by most of them um, to learn a new way of doing things. Uh, but when they hear it from you as the surgeon that's gonna be doing it, how it's gonna benefit their patients, they're more likely to give you an opportunity to prove it. What you have to do once you do those minimally invasive operations is follow up, follow up and let them know exactly how their patients benefited and not feel as if you've commandeered their patients and didn't include them in the whole recovery process. And, and I remember some of the early lessons you taught me about, it wasn't just the follow-up like in the hospital, you know, the, really the true magnitude or benefit for these minimally invasive procedures was getting these patients back to what they were doing before, correct? Getting back exactly. to work, part of the community, which is a much longer follow-up as compared to what we traditionally do in the world of surgery. True. And then showing that benefit of return to work, less time spent at the hospital. For those that needed any adjuvant treatment, they were able to get back to adjuvant treatment a lot quicker. Um, so many physicians bought into the concept of the benefits of these minimally invasive operations, which uh, continues now with the robotics and other technologies. <laughs> it's, it's incredible. And for the listeners, I, I smile because I still remember there were days in the uh, OR um, where I'd learned something and I was so rigid and it's like, well, we have to position this way. And he, and you would look at me and like, well, let me show you. And you would just show me right then and there that no, you don't have to, <laughs> <laughs> you have to be open to different techniques and different positioning. And uh, it, it was one of the fun times that we had there in Ann Arbor. And I, I do quibble a little bit about you saying that you don't know how to play basketball because you beat me up when we played that bad scrimmage game way back when. I still remember that. <laughs> Tom, you were, you were, you were being kind in the, in, in, in the sense of your abilities. You are more than capable of beating me in basketball at any given day. <laughs> <laughs> it's so great. I miss those days, though. It was always an opportunity in the cold of winter in Michigan. Yeah, in the cold winter, the dark days in Michigan. We had those, those are the lights. <laughs> the but it built lights. a lot of camaraderie between, you know, attendings and residents. Uh, so Yeah, we, we did. We, we, we really had a family back there. Uh, I wanted to pivot now to um, one of your leadership roles that you have, um, you know, you've got a couple of leadership roles. You're the chief of perioperative services uh, at uh, Emory University Hospital Midtown, but you're also the program director of the Emory Cardiothoracic Surgery Residency. Um, if I were to ask you what your leadership style is, how would you describe that uh, in these different wearing these different hats? I think the main thing is leading by example. So if you want people to behave in a professional manner, you got to behave in a professional manner yourself. So I think that is goal number one. Uh, the second effort is communication, right? You have to be a good communicator and let people know what the expectations are. Uh, you can't just report when they don't do it, but you got to tell them what you expect them to do in advance. And I think if you succeed at those things, you are a more effective leader. 
and that's sort of been the the way that my parents taught me. Um, you treat others as you wish to be treated, and you get more flies with honey than you do <laughs> with vinegar. Uh, and so I, I try to I, live by that. Yeah, no, I, I'm I'm struck by the fact that uh, Alan, that you have been very deliberate about uh, collecting great mentors. Uh, but you're also very deliberate about always being able to see the big picture, uh, which is remarkable considering the rural background that you came up from. How do you go, go about getting that? Like how, how you, I mean, all the conversations you and I have had over the years, that's been one of the things that really has been remarkable to me. You've been able to see the big picture. Could you describe about how you go about trying to see the big picture or setting a vision for the groups that you lead going forward? Well, I think a part of it comes from humble beginnings, you know, when you have a perspective from the lower levels of things, you are more aware of the journey to get to bigger and better things. You are considerate of the people in the lower levels, uh, whereas some just want to jump to immediate success. It takes some time and some deliberate effort to get to success. And you can't step on people in the process. You have to take time and respect those at every level of the journey. And it makes it a, a much more pleasant <laughs> journey. That's incredible. Um, obviously, Alan, you're married, you have great kids. Um, do your kids see you as this world famous cardiothoracic <laughs> surgeon or is it just that's dad. He's too, too strict with us. And you, you, you don't understand what the heck we're going through. <laughs> how, how, how's your parenting style these days? <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's similar at the Convergis household in, in terms of dad being overly strict about things. Dad wants to make the house into a operating room hospital and everything's organized in his unique way. Uh, but I think the joy of my life is is my wife and kids. Um, you learn over time to reserve time for that. I, early in my career, I, I spent a lot of time just staying at the hospital and always wanting to be there for my patients. But as you add kids into the equation, you realize that there are some other people depending on you and you got to get home and tuck them into bed and, you know, read a bedtime story and and then I had to get back to the work after that. So I started to really reserve those times when the kids uh, needed me. And I think that made me a better person, uh, made me a happier person every day at work was the simple joy I got out of spending time with my wife and kids. As uh, you know, in, in this, I mean, you and I could probably spend hours and days talking about so many different topics. It's, it's always great to connect. True. But, uh, you know, in, in this final uh, part of our interview, um, I, as you see the different changes that are occurring in the world around us and in this quest for all of us as we're trying to build a better world, are there any pearls of advice or, uh, with, uh, you know, pieces of wisdom that you'd like to uh, impart to our listeners? Uh, preparation. I always say anticipate all problems that will be known. So if you anticipate what you want your career to look like, do the work that's involved with preparing for it, success will come. Um, I think 
in our newer generations, people want immediate success. And not everyone wants to go out and spend the time to earn those skill sets. There are no shortcuts. Um, and if we commit ourselves to doing the work, the success will come. Amazing. Well, Dr. Alan Pickens, uh, it's been an honor to connect with you today on Same Surgeon, Different Light. Thank you so much uh, for taking the time, telling us about how uh, a really, really smart kid from rural Alabama <laughs> has uh, taken the world by storm. I really appreciate you taking the time to connect with us today. Oh, Tom, thank you so much for letting me sit and chat with you for a bit. It's always been a joy from the time we spent together at Michigan to every time I see you at a meeting. It, it's been a pleasure for me to watch your career thrive and the success you've achieved too. So thank you. Hopefully there's enough good things because I'm sure that if I do any missteps, <laughs> they'll be like, Alan, what the heck? Did you do? <laughs> it's all great. <laughs> uh, we'll get to play some basketball again at some point. We got to play some basketball. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Thanks so much, Alan. Thanks a lot, Tom. This has been Same Surgeon, Different Life a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about it. On social media, you can use the hashtag, the face of CT surgery. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons is available online at sts.org.